Coming up next, we'll see just how far the rabbit hole goes. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Albers and I'm your humble and obedient host. And I'm joined by... You know what? Let's just get this out of the way. Yeah. I didn't really care for Alice in the Wonderland. I can't even get the title right. Yeah, you can't. (sighs) But I'm afraid that we're going to be cast as children's book-hating Nazis. Yeah, my stance on it... Are we just given our (laughs) position at the beginning? (laughs) I, I, I think... We should all say a position, yeah. and, then, and then we'll- So here ourselves. is my stance on Alice in Wonderland. Yes, sir. It made me laugh. Am I glad I read it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good stance. Jake, your stance. My stance on Alice in Wonderland is I read it years ago and enjoyed it, and I didn't have the patience for it this time. Yes, I was simply, and quite honestly, I don't know that it's bad, and if somebody likes it, I don't really feel much of a need to take it away from them or prove that they're yeah, wrong. Me but neither. Man, I just thought it was boring, that's all. Yep. It just wasn't interesting to me. Yeah. At this point in my life, if something, if I'm going to spend time with something, it needs to have some sort of reason and purpose behind it. Yeah. When I was reading with my kids, my oldest son was laughing at some of the jokes. That kind of made it fun. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to put some energy into it and say, you know, I like this. But then I got to the Mad Hatter's Tea Party and it wasn't what I remembered. Mm-hmm. There's something, I don't know. It's like I the started, magic. I started reading it to my kids, and I felt like I had to work too hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. I don't want. I so rarely get to read to my kids. Mm-hmm. You want something that's really gonna. Yeah, I want connect. something that I love and that is gonna. Con- I don't have to work so hard to make connect with them. It's not that it's a bad book or that it's a book that people shouldn't read or can't enjoy or enjoy reading to their kids. It's just like that's not how I want to spend my time with them. I mean, it reads so. exactly like what the legend says is it was this guy who was just telling stories to idle away the hours with some mm-hmm. kids. That's what it reads like. Right. It just reads like silly stories you come up with to entertain your kids, but trying to sit there for like an hour to get through chapters was kind of a, becomes a chore. Yeah. Well, because I think that's kind of how it was meant to be. It was it more than, I don't know, it feels anecdotal. Right. This is a theory that I just had pop into my brain right now. My name is Nathan, by the way. That's Brandon over there. He's a scholar who's a baller of reading. And that's hey. Jake, pastor who's a master of reading. And this is our quickest so, quickest getting into uh, something ever. But we're, we're into it. So, sorry. This is a theory that I just came up with right now. So, it's not fully formed. Maybe it'll die. But we'll see. Let me try mm-hmm. this. Let me bring it out into the open air and see what happens to it. When I look at a surrealist painting or something like that. I can enjoy that kind of stuff. I actually like absurdity. I like nonsense. I like surrealism as anybody that listens to Sound of Sanity or The Ville or that kind of stuff knows. I I enjoy that stuff. But what's interesting about that kind of stuff, what makes it fun, is the interplay of sense and nonsense. And so, for example, if you're looking at a painting that's nonsense, you know, like a Salvador Dali painting, it's your brain attempting to make sense and make poetry and make meaning out of it that makes it interesting. And good absurdism, good nonsense has to have enough. It has to be just absurd enough that my brain can still make connections 
that are interesting to me. If it's too absurd, then I'm just looking at nonsense and it doesn't really mean anything. If it's not absurd enough, then it just feels like it's close to reality and, you know, it doesn't doesn't really work. But for me, Alice in Wonderland falls in the camp of it's not interesting. I mean, I know he wasn't necessarily trying for this, but when I was a kid, I brought a certain logic to the story and the logic was delightfully confounded by his absurdism. Now, the world that I live in seems more absurd and the interaction between my brain sense and his nonsense, the chemistry just isn't isn't interesting to me anymore. When I was a kid, whatever there was about my brain that was ordered, the way and the, the way that it perceived and ordered the world, the way that he exploded that made interesting mental connections. Now it doesn't. Does that make any sense at all? It makes sense. And I'm wondering, this is another theory. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this sort of absurdism with children's like this sort of thing with children. I wonder if it doesn't work better when there's some rhyme and rhythm to it. Just, yeah, I like all his poems better. Well, his poetry better. Yeah. is... That's what I was about to... Yeah, super his po- fun. His poetry is really fun. Just like we say with Milne, his poetry is pretty fun. So I wonder if this sort of absurdity goes hand in hand with the sort of sing-songiness of rhyme and rhythm with poetry. And it doesn't work better. Because well, the Jabberwocky's fun. The, the uh, Walrus and the Carpenter's great. Right. All these poems are really fun to read and quote. Yeah. Okay, so the Walrus and the Carpenter is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. The Walrus, the Walrus and the Carpenter works for me as a piece of absurdism because you can actually bring to it a lot of tragedy and a lot of understanding of the fact that if you trust the walruses of the world, you're going to get eaten. And when your mother says, you know, in other words, there's... A logic. Yeah, there's a logic to the story, even though it's nonsense. And it's, 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 it's hallucinatory. It's mind-expanding. It's fun to have that the logic the 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 fact that the story does actually make sense it's just cast in an unfamiliar form or something like that. I don't, I do not know how to talk or uh, say what I want to say I think what I'm saying is what I'm trying to say is that even nonsense has to have sense to it it has to have a certain logic to it well there's the traditional big bad wolf little children who are being taken advantage of by the big bad wolf but the inner <clears throat> the absurdity is their oysters Got the walrus and a carpenter for whatever reason. So there's already absurdity just in the cast of characters. But then the fun, I forget what the rhetorical devices he's using there, but the sand was dry as dry as, the sea was wet as wet could be. The sand was dry as dry. You right. could not see, you, no birds were flying overhead. There were no bo- birds to fly, right. all that sort of thing he's do- doing where he's playing with the negatives. Of course, there are no birds flying overhead. There weren't any birds to fly. So it's just, it's funny that he's even saying it in the first place. So that's pulling out the absurdity in the way he's telling the story. But then also they're weeping the whole time and crying and Mm -hmm. putting on this show of... So they're they're the traditional cast of characters. They they actually kind of remind me there of... Who are the two from Huck Finn? The king? The king and the... The king and the duke, yeah. Yeah, the king and the duke. That sort of of absurdism. Yeah. There's a psychology that's at work. There's a narrative that makes some amount of sense. But everything is strange and unreal at the same time. Yeah. And so it actually, it's interesting. Yeah. So it makes children laugh, but at the same time teaches them a story. Yeah. Or not teaches them a story, teaches them a, a moral. Well, like the the queen is the same yeah. way. She's a, she's a playing deck figure, and yet she's representative of things that we understand in real life. By, by throw, it's like whatever any fairy tale does, by exaggerating and throwing it into a sharp imaginative relief you're able to see something about regular human nature that you don't necessarily usually get to see as sharply and clearly which is what poetry does which is why the instinct in the room so far has been to say maybe that's proper for poetry yeah 
Yeah. For me, it works better as poetry or well, poetry. I think maybe what I'm arguing is that for some people, it probably works just fine. And it's just their sense of logic, their sense of story, their sense of whatever allows them to bring something to Alice in Wonderland that works. And I'm going to say that's a, a subjective thing, and I don't hold that against them. But I just, what I actually want to say is that I bet mathematicians and logicians and engineerish type of people probably like Alice in Wonderland better than. Than poetical types like us, because it's all a lot. A lot of it is wordplay. Yeah, a lot of it's wordplay. It's logic games, yeah. and if you have a strict understanding of logic, and if you order your life in a logical sort of way, and you perceive things logically, yeah. you're going to be more delighted by his leaps. Of it's like the secret to a good to a joke is never the punchline; it's always the straight line. And if you bring your own sense of rigid sort of straight lines. Yeah. To Alice in Wonderland, the punchlines are going to seem, seem funnier. Whereas if your life, like my life, is just a morass of things that don't ever make any sense anyway, then Alice in Wonderland is just kind of more of the same. Yeah, there. <clears throat> to go to that point that it might make more sense to logicians. <laughs> they... <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but... <laughs> oh, maybe you're exaggerating. I don't know that you are. <laughs> I think you are exaggerating. Um so the two famous chapters to go with what you're saying that this might be funnier for logicians mm. or mathematicians would be the Caterpillar and Humpty Dumpty. Mm-hmm. These are two famous chapters, but they're famous because these show him kind of making fun of these philosophical types right. by exaggerating. Well, like he does with... So he works through exaggeration. Right. That's one of the things he does. And he'll bring in these familiar... Non- these these things that might be familiar to either fellow logicians and mathematicians or just anyone in England at the time. Mm-hmm. Think about the caucus race is what the dodo calls the race they have to do. Obviously, that's a, a not-so-subtle jab, really, at politics. politics. Who cares where you begin? Just start, and we'll stop eventually, and there'll be no logic to it. And so there's probably something to be said about that. But with a caterpillar, he's asking these questions that all philosophers ask, like, Why? Who are you, right? Mm-hmm. But he's this very serious caterpillar. He's sitting up on this mushroom and he's asking, who are you? And Alice is getting confounded and confused by these questions she's never really had to think about before. And she's like, well, actually, who am I? Like, mm-hmm. And why? And she's like, well, that actually is a good question. Why? And so he's making f- fun of these characters that children won't even necessarily pick up on, right? but that guys like philosophers, mathematicians, they would. Right. And it's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, I laugh at some of that part. Yeah, there's like I said, this satire. is funny stuff. Yeah, he makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. The Humpty well, Dumpty chapter is pretty funny. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I came up with another way of saying the thing that I'm trying to circle around. When I was a kid, I thought that the world was crazy. The world felt crazy to me, and yet adults were always trying to impose, or very much felt like they were trying to impose this logic on it and they were trying to say you know what actually it makes sense when you get older it'll make sense i'm talking about when i was you know six or seven and then you found an old aviator who told you you had to keep that little child alive and yeah you just got to keep that child alive and and and, and kill yourself kill yourself yeah. um <laughs> let yourself get killed by the snake little prince wicked book we'll talk about it one day i think we talk about it all the time yeah. and we do all the credit it, we give it all the credit it <laughs> yeah deserves. we'll never do yeah. that book <laughs> never gonna do that little prince evil evil, we, evil book we won't the bible talk about of it. emo girls yep the bible of emo girls that's a good way of putting it so i uh, had a student who called it their bible did i tell you that i think you College did student. but he was not a girl he was not no wasn't he though brandon he was, he was swiss yeah, he was mm. he was he, swiss he's from geneva huh your daughter's named Geneva. Did you name him after that guy? No. 
No, I, I just did, said, did you name him? That didn't work did. at all. <laughs> more of my I painted... did not name him after himself. More of that, the, my painted it absurdism, folks. So I'm a kid. Adults are always trying to impose logic, or so it feels. Like, you know, it'll all make sense when you get older. And then so, Carol comes in and whispers, you're right all along. Yeah, we're all mad down here. That line still resonates with me. The Cheshire yeah. Cat saying, we're all mad here. I love that line. That line is That's, like, yeah. he, he sees deeply into life there because everyone is mad and it's crazy. Right? I mean, don't tell anybody, podcast listeners, but... No, there's a reason the Cheshire Cat has become the symbol. Yeah, he's an icon, right? He's somebody that you yeah. want to paint on subways or when Tim wear Burton, on t-shirts or... Yeah, when Tim Burton retold this story, <laughs> that's the one thing he really almost got right was the Cheshire yeah, Cat. I agree. I agree. I have not watched that movie when all the When good old through. Walt Disney told the story. Yeah. He gave us the most iconic visual of him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love the Cheshire Cat as a, from the Walt Disney. But we'll get to baggage the after one, we finish The one track... Oh, yeah. Book. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. We'll talk. Yeah. The worst, man, that Mad Hatter. Right. In Tim Burton's movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's well, true. yeah. I don't know that I ever saw that one. I didn't actually see it, but I did see the Cheshire Cat scenes and some other scenes. Yeah. So as a, so then Carol comes up to me as a kid, just to finish this thought, and he says, hey, actually, it is crazy. There is no logic. And so there's something very satisfying about it. Hmm. Now I've gotten older, I've confirmed there is no logic, basically. Yeah, we've got an overgrown Oompa Loompa as president right now. Right. It's like, you know what? Life's life actually is crazy and it's okay. You find you you muddle your way through it. And actually folks, of course, as a Christian, I don't ultimately believe it's crazy, but I'm expressing a feeling. It feels crazy, right? And yeah. so I have a greater belief in an order outside of myself now. I have better faith in God than I did, and I have a more healthy just acceptance of the fact that a lot of life does feel surreal and weird and absurd and crazy. And so both of those things have conspired to make it so that I no longer really need Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Which is just fine because you're a 33-year-old male and this is a children's book. Yep. Yes, and eventually you have to grow up. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, Mr. Dodgson was not a young man when he wrote this book. (laughs) (laughs) What's that sound? (laughs) We're doing things kind of out of order. Oh, this is great for the Alice in Wonderland episode. Everything's topsy-turvy. Oh, we're all mad down here. We're all mad. Oh, look, Brandon's fading. It's just his smile. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've got the contextual Texan smile, and it is going to... This is creepy. Now everyone has to visualize your floating smile talking to... Just floating around the microphone here. (laughs) This this is the section of the show where Brandon's going to give us some much-needed context. Brandon's from Texas. He's, I am. He provides much-needed context of Lewis Carroll and this work, Alice in Wonderland. So take it away, Brandon. All right. Let's do this. Well, Alice in Wonderland was written by Lewis Carroll, but the first fun fact is that his name actually was not Lewis Carroll. What? Yeah, that was a pseudonym. Oh. His real name was Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, eh? Yeah. And he came from a long, illustrious line. Do you want to guess what? Earls. Not earls. Dukes. No. Kings. No. Mathematicians. No. Though his father could have been a mathematician. Uh, Insane asylum keepers. People who were fairly influential and high up in the Anglican church. Oh, uh, vicars. Yeah, vicars and priests. Not priests, whatever they would have been called. Clergy. 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 He was a clergyman's son and... He was actually a deacon later on in his life of Christchurch. So, in fact, it was the daughter of one of the heads at Christchurch who would be the supposed influence for Alice. Supposed. This is supposed. intriguing. 
He would deny it his entire life, but this is what most people think. So, so let's start here. Let's actually read. Did you guys read the poem that started it out? I think, I think so. so. All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. For both our oars with little skill by little arms replied, while little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. Ah, cruel three, in such an hour beneath such dreamy weather, to beg a tale of breath too weak to stir the tiniest feather. Yet what can one poor voice avail against three tongues together? <laughs> it just sounds disturbing. <laughs> Imperious prima flashes forth her edict to begin it. In gentler tone, Secunda hopes there will be nonsense in it, while Tertia interrupts the tale not more than once a minute. Anon, to sudden silence one and fancy they pursue, the dream child moving through a land of wonders wild and new, in friendly chat with bird or beast, and half believe it true. And then he keeps going on. Now let's keep it. Let's keep doing it. And ever, as the story drained, the wells of fancy dry, and faintly strove that weary one to put the subject by, the rest next time, it is next time, the happy voices cry. Thus grew the tale of Wonderland, thus slowly, one by one, its quaint events were hammered out, and now the tale is done. And home we steer, a merry crew, beneath the setting sun. Alice, a childish story take, and with a gentle hand, lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band, like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers, plucked in a far-off land. We read that because I read portions of a book on the relationship between Mr. Charles Dodgson and little Alice, mm. an actual girl, the was daughter. Uh, fraught with controversy. If yeah, I'm the daughter saying. of Henry Little, who was um, the dean of Christ Church in Oxford, where, so if anybody knows how Oxford is set up, you actually have schools within Oxford. And what would happen is you would go to school. This is what happened with C.S. Lewis as well. If you were a promising scholar, you would then become a lecturer. You didn't like get recruited by another school. If you actually went to the school, became a promising scholar. It, so it would be similar to going to Harvard to get your PhD. And they decide just to keep you there and you become a lecturer. And then eventually a full professor. That was very common. We don't do it that way at all in America today with our educational system. But I guess if you want a good picture of it, go and read um, The Hideous Strength. Because that's mm-hmm. exactly what he's hoping it will happen with him. Mark? Mark, yeah. All that to say, he was heavily involved with Christ Church. He went to Oxford, was a mathematician, and he met the dean of Christ Church, was his Henry Liddell, and he had a little girl, Alice and her sister, and Charles Dodgson would take them out onto the Thames during lazy summer afternoons, and they would go on their boat during you know the heavy summer haze, and we'd find little quiet places that they could go into the grass, and he could tell them stories. You want me to stop? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, but (laughs) you better go on. No, so this poem, I think that, yeah, and well, I don't think, this poem actually is all in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. He's talking about these boat rides they would take. We have letters from him that actually talk about these boat rides that he would take, and he would, their father would sometimes be with them, their father sometimes would not be with them, because, you know, he trusted Mr. Dodgson with his daughters, Mm -hmm. and he would tell them these stories, and eventually... They convinced him to write them down, and you, fun fact, guess whose children he told the story to, and they told him they loved them so much that it convinced him to get his book published. I don't know why you guys would even know this. George MacDonald. Hey. Huh. Yep. So, George MacDonald was friends with Lewis Carroll, and his children loved these stories. They loved the nonsense of it, and convinced Charles Dodgson, under his pseudonym Lewis Carroll, to get these things published. So... For days and days gone by. Who was Lewis Carroll? Well, Brennan, yeah. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Let's I do want it. To, I want to say two things. 
Number one, mm-hmm. there are some interesting rumors yeah. and suspicions, and we're going to be discussing that yeah. later in the episode. So if you like to listen with your kids on a drive or something like that, this might not be the episode for that. Yeah. Should have maybe said that at the top, but... I think um, you probably got... If you, if you have ears to hear, you got some foreshadowing there. Right. Exactly. Secondly... Let's do donor shoutouts. <laughs> we need a palate cleanser. Yeah, <laughs> I just think since we're since we're in topsy turvy Wonderland, we might as well do things backwards. So I'll you guys take turns shouting them out and saying what character from Alice in Wonderland they're most like. Brennan, Robert, and Rhonda Chastain. Who are they most like from Alice in Wonderland? You know, there's not very many complimentary. Yeah, that's this is the problem. <laughs> what characters are they most unlike? Okay. Well, the king and queen of hearts. There you go. The immortal Chelsea E. Jake? The immortal Chelsea E is most unlike the Mad Hatter. Nathan, not me, Brandon. Nathan, not me. He is the most unlike the March Hare. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley, Jake? Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley are the most unlike the the caterpillar. (laughs) Uh, Lily of the Valley, Brandon? Lily of the Valley is the... She's... The least like Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty, yes, sir. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Jake? They're the least like the Cheshire Cat. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Brandon? She is the least like uh, the Dormouse. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Jake? John and Jill and Little Baby Max are the least like Alice. The Keith Master, Brandon? The Keith Master is the least like uh, the Walrus. Very true. David's Mighty Man Trucking, Jake. The least like the White Rabbit. Uh, Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. They're the least like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. My beloved mother, Beth. Jake. She is the least like the Knave of Hearts. Jeremy, the dark-hooded Lord of Death, Brandon. Uh, He's the least like the Carpenter. There you go. The incandescent, beautiful Meredith. She's the least like... The dodo. I can't confirm she's not much like a dodo. Judo Joanna, the jack-in-the-box killer. Judo Joanna, the jack-in-the-box killer. Uh, um, she's the least... I'm trying to wrap my head around that name. Uh, she is the least like... Have we already said the caterpillar? I think we have. I think Jake might be able to help you out here. Yeah. It's possible I'm able to help you out. Help How about out. the Duchess? The Duchess. The Duchess. Oh, yeah, the Why Duchess. don't we have Brandon shout them out and Jake say who they're like? That there we go. Way to finish this out. out. Maya! Maya! She's the least like the mock turtle. Maya is nothing like a mock turtle. Maya, if you're listening, you're nothing like a mock turtle, and we we appreciate you for it. Rockin' Ryan and Judo Judy. Rockin' Ryan and Judo Judy. The least like the Griffin. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Uh, the least like the Frog Footman. Benny and Dana T. Benny and Dana T. The least <laughs> like the Fish Footman. Eric and Catherine, the Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the Lovebirds. The least like Bill the Lizard. Doctor, or no, I always get that wrong. Professor X and Lady X. Professor X and Lady X. The least like the Eaglet. And introducing... Introducing our very newest member, a hearty booking welcome to the artful Anthony Dodger. 
The artful Anthony. The awful Anthony Dodger. <laughs> the awful Anthony Dodger. Least like Baird the Bloodhound. Least like Baird the Bloodhound. Hey, welcome aboard, Anthony. Thanks for <sighs> say hi to Anthony, and fellas. What's up, Anthony? Made, yeah, thanks well, for hey. supporting us. And yeah, getting Jake to say a character I'd completely forgotten about. Yeah. Well, Brandon, pray continue with your context, sir. Are we pretty haste? Pretty haste. Yes. To sir. my context. Yes. Okay, Nathan, I will. What context comes through yonder window? Oh, please, does it break like new dawn of morning? What? <laughs> Are we? S- do I have to do this? Do I really have to do this? <laughs> nope. Yes, you do. Okay, so quickly. So what have I said so far? You... He came from a uh, family of clergy, and his father was actually... So let's let's just start with his biography again then. Right. From square one, because we just got to the riverboat. We were about to get to the creation of Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. and then we stopped for some donor shout-outs. Right. So then to go back... He was born in the 1830s. His father was a clergyman, but his father was also a promising mathematician that had decided to go into the clergy as well. And this, these two influences would kind of direct young Dodgson's childhood. So he would be heavily involved with the church for the most part with the rest of his life. He would be a deacon at Christ Church, even though he would never, a lot of, the time, a lot of times, apparently, if you became a deacon, you were also required to enter the priesthood. He never would enter the priesthood, and we also have, apparently there are letters when I say we, I don't know who I think I am. <laughs> there are letters out there that apparently suggest that he had issues with the church. He was a skeptic, but he was also involved with the church to some extent his whole life. Whether or not he was a Christian, probably not. He was a very punctual, punctilious, orderly man. Kind of reminds me a lot of what people say Kant was like. Mm-hmm. And people said you could like watch your wristwatch in Ger- that little German town where he lived. For when he would you take could, his walk. Yeah, and... he could always, he, he would take his walk. He would go and get his dinner, and then he would go home and write his books that made no sense. There's even more similarity right there. (laughs) So, young Charles was taught at home. Apparently, we have... I said it again. We. I'm just going to do it. We. No, apparently, we have... We the people. Royal we. We the people. Mm -hmm. You have access if you want to go and see the books that he read as a young child, but the most impressive, according to the biography I read, was he loved The Pilgrim's Progress at the young age of seven. So he was, what do they call it? A good reader. A good reader. He was, pos- he was precocious. posthumous. He was precocious. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I can only think of posthumous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was not posthumous. Not yet. And he was, but he would be pseudonymous. Mm-hmm. He would eventually go to a boys' school where he would succeed, but interestingly enough, he would grow a, a hatred for bullies for the rest of his life. Mm. One of his friends said that, this was because at school he was bullied mm-hmm. as being a young, shy, stammering boy, and this would cloud the rest of his life. It's important to know that he had a lot of physical limitations. He was tall and thin. He was six foot. He had a knee injury later in his life that made him walk very stiff. And then earlier in his life, he had a bad case of the whooping cough, which made it where he was very short of breath the rest of his life. He was asymmetrical on one side of his face, and he had a severe stammer. In fact, most say that he based the dodo on himself. That's because he had such trouble saying his last name, Dodgson, he would say it dodo. That's important because it made him a very shy, timid man. He loved to argue. He was a very logical thinker. By the time he got into the boys' school, one of the headmasters there said he had never, or one of the teachers said he had never had such a promising young student, and especially with mathematics. He was very gifted with clear, rational thought. 
And later in life, he would write essays and stuff, political uh, tracks that he would put in the newspapers. But he would do this because he thought with, for one, he thought with writing, he could always organize his thoughts. He liked the fact that he could organize his thoughts. And also he wouldn't have to speak publicly because he had this stammer. Even though they said um, in some of the biographies and other things that I read about him that when he was reciting or telling stories, he could kind of overcome this stammer. So you begin to realize why beyond whatever other connotations come out of this, why this timid man who was bullied as a young boy, who was shy, who was physically awkward, who had a stammer, would be drawn to children because Mm -hmm. they might actually be ones who would listen to him, right? And he loved nonsense. He had a, he just, he, he actually honestly loved reason and logic. And then he also therefore loved the counter of it, which would be nonsense because he liked to make fun of those and play with words and make fun of those who didn't have logic. So that naturally led to him liking to tell children's stories, right? That's an aside. I think it's important to kind of keep that in our mind because it helps you realize why he became who he became. Right. Right. And if we're going to try to paint some somewhat of a sympathetic picture of him. So we left him in the boys' school. He's successful there. He has a tendency to be a little bit lazy because he was always so intellectually and academically gifted that he really didn't have to try. He easily gets into Oxford uh, where he has quite a bit of success. He wins some awards for his mathematics. He loses out on some scholarship and he admitted in some letters that he wrote that that was because he was lazy at that point. But still, he was so gifted that eventually he won a lectureship to Christ Church and he would hold that lectureship for 26 years. And I've already kind of described and explained what that would be like, which was the start to his career as a fairly prominent thinker. He would actually have books that he would write on mathematics and he would write those under his name, Charles Dodgson. And so... He was involved with Christ Church. He becomes friends with Henry Little. He becomes, he starts befriending his daughter, Alice, telling her these stories. As he becomes a mature man, most of his friendships were with children and especially little girls. They were the ones he felt most comfortable uh, being around. And he would often have them at his house or he would take them out on the rivers to tell them stories. He did like to tell children's stories. I mean, that's very clear with Alice in Wonderland. He liked the sort of playfulness that came with telling stories. He himself liked the theater. He liked opera. He liked these sorts of things. Even though his church kind of disapproved of them, he would still go to the playhouses and watch opera and theater. Um, He became involved with a art um, movement called the Pre-Raphaelites. He himself wasn't really involved with it, but he was friends with these guys. So Christina Rossetti would have been one of the most famous ones. I don't know if you guys are. John Ruskin would have been the prominent thinker. So So this is like... This isn't really romanticism. Romanticism was more free reign of the emotions, but still tied to some sort of form. Because when we get to Charlotte Bronte, what we'll, what we'll hopefully get a chance is maybe read some romantic poems. Keats and Shelley, all those guys, even though they were giving free reign to their emotions, they still were all writing like odes and these Greek, these Greek tight-knit poems, even though there was this other freedom to it as well. With the Pre-Raphaelites, they wanted to get back to more intense, just free expressions of more, even more older classical stuff. Intense colors, intense emotion, and stuff like that. So they didn't like the rigidity of some of the later classical Renaissance. It's my understanding. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. And I apologize to our readers if I have that completely backwards. John Ruskin would be famous. He he was famous for going to like what's that famous chapel in France that everybody goes to? Saint Michel. Is that what it is? Anyways, it's on this craggy rock, this promontory, and there's this chapel up on the top where these monks 
built this beautiful, wonderful cathedral, and you can go and still visit it. And so they would go, and it was all about the intensity of nature and all this. And so he was kind of associated with that, but I mean, really with Lewis Carroll, we'll probably talk even more about the Pre-Raphaelites when we do Charlotte Bronte. He really didn't fit into a category of literary, a literary movement. It's not like he was in a movement at all. He was a mathematician. He was a logician who happened to write children's stories that were loosely based around his interests in logic and wordplay. And that's really important to understand that he was kind of political. He was into argument, but he would always do it in the written form. And so obviously these things get wrapped in to Alice in Wonderland. He's making fun of all sorts of people. He's making fun of philosophers. He's making fun of mathematicians. Kind of like Dante, he's got fellow professors in this book that he's kind of making fun of as well. And if you were to go through and you you can go and find these archival references to everybody he's referencing and making fun of here and here, and all the little brilliant side points and stuff that are wrapped into Alice in Wonderland, which you would completely expect with someone as smart as him. I mean, and so we're not going to sit here and go through all the references for you. I don't think that would be a productive use of the bookening's time. Just know they're there and they're really witty. <laughs> you can go find them if you want to. You certainly we've, can. We've pointed out to like the caucus race is the obvious one. The caterpillar, I think they they think he's based on someone that, and so all these just you can have fun going if you really like this sort of thing. Go and figure it out. He took the name Lewis Carroll because there were Latinizations of his middle names and his last name, I think. But when he began to write poetry and try to get them published and try to get his poems published and then write some of these children's poems and other stories, he wanted to take a pseudonym because he wanted to preserve his academic name, which makes sense. And so he started right under Lewis Carroll. If anybody was curious as to why he did that at first, the first appearance we have of it is in the 1850s, which would have put him in his 20s. So that's where we, that's why he started writing under Lewis Carroll. There's not a big fancy myth-making story about it. It's just because he wanted to separate himself with some fair distance between his own writing. There is a funny story. The queen, Queen Victoria, loved Alice in Wonderland, and she told it's very similar to what happened with Austin when the prince read her books and then had his librarian contact her. The queen told her librarian or whoever, her secretary, to contact this writer and tell him as soon as he had his next book to send it to her. And so, lo and behold, a few months later, she gets this nightly, nicely wrapped volume. She opens it up, and it's like On the Principles of Mathematics and Logic by <laughs> Charles Dodgson. So um, that's a funny little joke. That's pretty cute. Yeah. So you have this parallel life that he always was leading. And then... In the 1850s, you have, I didn't realize it was this early, you have this new technological wonder that comes out. Mm, mm. Does anybody have a guess as to what it is? The photograph. Yes, the camera. The and camera. Mr. Carroll being in the intellectual circles where he would, so like he, it's important to know, he, he, had, he was a strange man. He was in Christchurch, was a fairly conservative Anglican church. He was a deacon at that church. He had some authority there. The preacher's they they didn't like the opera house and theater, and yet he still went to the opera house and theater. So he was still this progressive man mm. in Oxford, like you would expect, or like we would think of a professor today, this guy who's interested in everything. He finds out about the camera, and he starts taking an interest in it, and becomes a amateur photographer. Mm. Mm-hmm. And mysteriously, later in life, around 1880, we don't know why, he stopped taking pictures. Some think it's because he didn't like the new way that cameras were headed. There may be other reasons. And so that's Lewis Carroll. There's not a really a whole lot more to say about him except for the stuff that's going to get us into sort of dark territory. Well. And so this is, if anybody's listening with children, this might be where you should turn off the episode. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Are we ready to do this, guys? 
Yep. We put this episode off for three years because we didn't want to talk about well, this. Well, come back with me, my friends, to the Tims. <laughs> <laughs> and just so the debate, it should be clear by now if you, like I said, if you were listening and you have any sort of discernment and can read, read between the lines, maybe not even needing to read between the lines based on my tone. Mm-hmm. You have this man who was trusted by Henry Little taking his daughters out alone to go and tell them stories on the sunny banks. And it's always important when you're trying to figure out whether intentions are good or bad to just listen and try to read read the tone. I mean, all in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide, for both our oars with little skill by little arms are plied. There's just something, even when you're just thinking about what's going on here, that's just nasty. Even if it was innocent. I I didn't know any of this backstory mm-hmm. the first time I read this book. And I came away with a really icky feeling, and the word I used was pedophilic. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the discussion. And so there's this little flirty nature to this poem, like, mm. oh, Imperious Prima flashes forth her edict to begin it. And it's, I mean, he's being cutesy and trying to get into the charm and magic of Wonderland, but it's important to know, just like if you listened to last episode when Andrew Henry dropped the bomb about Dickens. Mm-hmm. Right? And I completely believe that it's important to know background and biography. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to know what Mr. Dodgson was doing with those cameras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was he, were he just taking pictures of animals? Were he just taking pictures of trees? All these other sorts of things he could have been taking pictures of. We wouldn't be having issues with Mr. Dodgson. But there are a few things about his later life that just shroud him in this stench. One of them is the fact that he had a camera and he was taking pictures of naked little girls. There's just no other way to say it. He would, according to this one biography at aliceinwonderland.com, it was completely innocent and all the moms knew about it and it was okay. And it was something that all Victorians were doing anyways. It was a popular form of photography at the time. But he did, in his letters, direct that all these pictures be burned after his death. So there is that. And there's really no way of getting around it. That's what he was doing with the camera. He was having his little girls take off their clothes and he was taking pictures of them. It wasn't the only thing, just to be fair, if there's, if it's worth, I, I suppose it's, it's worth being fair. It is worth being fair, yes. He took, a lot, he took lots of other pictures. He took probably more pictures of little girls clothed. He did. Or in various costumes. Yeah. His argument to mothers was that he loved the beauty of the form and the clothes obscured it. Right. And that it was just art and beauty. I mean, think about him. He was involved with the pre-Raphaelite movement. He loved to go to the opera house. He loved to go to theater. So he did have this sort of drive towards warring within him would have been his logical, mathematical, orderly mind. Then he also this tendency towards the maudlin and the sentimental that you get with the weird pre-Raphaelite stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pre-Raphaelite is weird stuff. You can go and look up pre-Raphaelite paintings if you want to. And it might help you understand where he would even come up with an argument like that, if you want to say it wasn't just perverse. Then there, on top of that, there's the mystery of there is a good portion of his diary that is just missing, Mm -hmm. that his family had destroyed. And we don't know why. We've never found out why, but it's just, it's missing. And it's a good chunk of his life that has just disappeared from his uh, diary. And so there's that mystery on top of this mystery. And then the third thing to keep in mind is that he did particularly befriend little girls. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there's even more, isn't there, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a certain point when his relationship with the Liddells stopped. Yes. Very abruptly. And Alice Liddell wouldn't... So this book that I was reading is really fascinating. And this guy admits that we don't know. Right. 
but he's completely on this camp that there's enough in the letters and there's enough weirdness about Lewis Carroll's life that you really are stretching it to say that something wasn't going on. Sure. And there is this fact that Alice just completely cut off ties with him. Uh, her family did. And she would, even though she loved the fame of being Alice later in her life, she would like come over to America and they would say Alice in America land on the, in the paper. She was like a minor celebrity, but she would really not. And she would only talk about Lewis Carroll in these sort of golden afternoon ways, but never really go into the details mm-hmm. and never really would tell anybody why they cut off ties. And she is one of the girls you can actually, obviously for many reasons, recommend that you don't do this, but you can find a picture of her in some stage of a undress as a young as a young girl. Well, yeah, I would definitely not try to look that up. Sure. Unless you want to get on an... And just to be clear, I didn't look it up, but... <laughs> Good way to land yourself on an FBI law. Watch yeah. list there, Nathan. <laughs> it just feels like it might be worth saying it exists. Yeah, they exist. And well, I guess it also goes without saying, or I guess it's probably worth saying that you can go and find a picture of Lewis Carroll too. And it doesn't look like something about you'd want babysitting your children. Let's just say that. <laughs> okay. Well, so there, we got the facts on the table. Those are the facts. I think we've tried to be fair. So what was it that gave you the willies, Jake? Um, I think it was just a vibe. It wasn't anything in particular. This would have been, I don't know, 10, between 10 and 15 years ago. Because I was looking for it this time, and I got it from that poem that Brandon read. Yeah. But the descriptions of Alice herself and what she does and the way he portrays her, it didn't particularly jump out at me as being... Icky. Icky. I mean, it's not certainly not as maudlin as like Milne was. Yeah. There's no descriptions of, I mean, just frankly speaking, there's not a lot about her body or about anything like that. Or even to be fair with him, he's not condescending either. He's yeah. he's having just as much fun as yeah, the kids I, are. If I had the patience to reread it this go around, then maybe I could point to some things or maybe I would agree with you. I just know that that was the feeling that I got that first time, and I just felt icky about it. And I, I never had bothered to look up any of that stuff about him, but it just didn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we want to say about it? Yeah, I mean, when I was reading it to the kids this time, I didn't really pick up on that vibe. This poem definitely did. Oh, the poem, yeah. But the problem is... Well, the poem does set the tone for how to... Yeah, and then there's this older man trying to get into the head of a little girl and kind of give you her thoughts. Uh-huh. And so just that in and of itself, you know, her thinking about how her kitten is naughty and all that kind of stuff. There's once you, once you sort of know you're supposed to be looking for it, it's not that hard to find, you know? And I think what saves this book from completely just being perverted by it is the fact that it re- so with, for example, Milne, and I'm not saying that he has this, but what gave him the sort of sourness that set us off was that we have a direct relation between the author and a child. So you can kind of see how the author relates to a child. Mm-hmm. What kind of sets us apart and why the poem stinks, but the rest doesn't necessarily stink of this is because we're not, we don't have that relationship at all. It's just Alice wandering through Wonderland. Right. Right. He's just telling you the story. Why the little prince has it is because we have that relationship with the aviator and it's pedophilic. There's no way of getting around it there. There's no figures in the novel that particularly feel like adult. Yeah, when she meets him, like, it's not, I I didn't get, the caterpillar didn't strike me as a pedophile. Right. Right. But there is, that is weird. The story's weird. But what's, like, what parts of it struck you? Do you remember? 
No, I, I, it really was that long ago, and it's hard to say. And I wonder, looking back, if it's not just so many of the great kids' stories are good versus evil, we're going to overcome something, not I'm going to now acclimate you to weirdness. Mm-hmm. For And maybe it was just that. Maybe it was as much I'm going to acclimate you to weirdness and off-putting things and absurd things and things that feel wrong but are right, that just had a enough of a grooming yeah she's eating things and it's changing her body and she's yeah drinking things and it's changing her body and she's following strange rabbits down strange holes and and following reading strange instructions and doing what they say and it's all just okay yeah there is i mean i can i can see that and then also one thing that struck me is maybe it's weird like you said as a child it was okay Mm -hmm. but trying to read this just as an adult without children you're reading it to. So I'm imagining Jake reading this for the first time, just as an adult, mm-hmm. and he's not reading it to his kids. It feels weird. Yeah, like, why do I need to imagine? Like, okay, sure, a girl, I keep going back to, she has this cat, I forget what his name is, the cat, not the Cheshire cat. but uh, Not Daisy. Alice has a cat that she's always thinking about. Dinah. Like, yeah, what would Dinah do in this situation? Or Dinah was being naughty and I had to punish Dinah. It's like, it's the kind of stuff that a little girl would do, but... There is something where you're kind of like, do I as an adult man without kids or a wife or anything reading along with me really need to be thinking about how a little girl thinks about things? Or there is that aspect. I don't want to make too much of that either, but yeah, there is that thing to it. Yeah. That, and that may have been part of it, a big part of it. Well, what do we want to say about this, guys? How should it affect or should it affect the way we view this story? I think... Uh, I don't know who should, what's the best way to talk about this is, but there's a couple different ways you could interpret the facts, I guess, right? Yeah, there. I think there are two clear ways of looking at it. One way of looking at it is, here's a man who took pictures of naked girls and who took Alice herself out on the river and told her these stories and took naked pictures of her. And later in life, her entire family cut him off and she cut him off. And he asked for all the pictures to be burned. And these are the stories that he told her while they were out alone on the river. And there's enough circumstantial, enough real stuff going on there and enough circumstantial stuff going on there to look at the man as completely corrupt or potentially corrupt enough that you want to say, I don't know that I want to have anything to do with this. I don't know if I want this man in the heads of my children shaping the way they think about the world, even if I can't draw clear lines or detect anything nefarious going on. Let me ask a clarifying question before we move on. The the naked pictures, do we want to call that circumstantial or do we want to call that whatever the opposite of, do we want to just call that evidence? It's evidence. I think it's evidence. In other words, there's not, you do, you cannot conceive of a non-sexual or non-gross way to take a naked picture of a little girl. It's not, kind of a stupid n- question, isn't not, it, as not, it comes out of my mouth? Not ultimately, but as, as you've argued, I'm not sure on or off mic, we can't import our perversity to a different time and place. For one and for two, if you if you wanted to make an argument, the argument would be. This is the other argument. We said there's two ways of looking at this. Pretty sure Joseph Mangala took pictures of naked children for research purposes. <laughs> Thanks, <Yeah>. Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bringing Alfred. the Nazis into an argument is always a good. Uh, <coughs> good Alfred, Alfred Kinsey had. Uh, never mind. Well, here's what I want to say about but, in a post Kinsey world, we're all intensely aware of this thing called pedophilia. We're all aware of. The fact that it happens all the time and we do 
think about Carol with a level of creepiness that, you know, as Jake moves into um, talking about the other point of view, I just want to make the point. We do think about it in a sexual, perverse way that it seems the Victorian parents of the time just weren't thinking about it that way. Maybe they were naive. Maybe they were stupid. Maybe there is something inherently wrong with it. I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying people did not always think about this, these circumstances, with the same level of perversity that we now bring to it. And yeah. that is an important point to remember. The In the most... Charitable? Most charitable way to look at the photography. I know why you don't like that word. And I think our listeners can probably figure out why you don't like that word. But um, yeah, the... The uh, most non-damning. Yes. The most non-damning way you can look at this is uh, nudity in art and in painting is something that had been widely accepted for a long time going Mm -hmm. way, way, way back. And not many people batted eyes about it. And now you've got a new medium and it's photography and people haven't thought or considered. But the fact remains that you still are looking at a seven or eight year old naked girl having having to stand naked or sit naked or whatever it was, and I don't want to know, in front of a man alone who's mm-hmm. taking pictures of her. and For periods of time. For for lengths of time. And no little girl should ever be subjected to that kind of thing. Yeah. So even you, The if, picture doesn't just spring out of like a second. <laughs> That's important to realize. There had to be moments that passed. Oh, yeah. Well, they would have to go into a room and they would have to, yeah. you know, you've seen the people have surely seen like, you know, old timey camera yeah. where it's actually yeah. taking a matter of minutes where someone stands still and poses for this picture to, to develop. So, yeah. Okay. So, but the flip side of that is still, okay. If you can if you can see your way, dear listener, into putting a non-damning spin on that, and then also say, we still abide by the principle, innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. And so we have a ton of really compelling circumstantial evidence. We do not have, you know, the scripture in multiple places says two witnesses, two or three witnesses. We, we don't do, have that. We All do we do have, have is circumstantial evidence. We do not have anyone that witnessed or anything from Dodgson himself saying. And the stories are fun, and I don't detect clear lines of anything there. Of grooming and, patterns. Or and the poetry's and the hilarious and fun, and things are funny, and a little nonsense is good for the soul. So let's not overthink this. That would be the other side of it. Right. And what do we want to say about that? I think the first thing I want to say about that is I just want to say, reiterate in case it wasn't clear, I think there is something inherently sexual in taking a picture of someone naked. Nudity wasn't made for people to share with each other. It's right there in the, in, in the scripture, in the law, you know, do not uncover your brother's nakedness or your father's nakedness. I think we're, we all know that. I think one could argue if one wanted to be quote unquote charitable or not damning that perhaps Lewis Carroll was not aware of anything sexual. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there when he took those photographs. Maybe maybe the nicest thing you could say, I think, is Carol was damaged somehow and just didn't get it. And everyone was naive. You know, the parents and Carol and the girls were all naive and weren't aware that something sexual was transpiring. And yet, I would still say... And in a non-sexualized culture, maybe the girls, maybe they were untouched or un- uncorrupted by, not corrupted by... Yeah, we don't know what level of nudity for young children was. I mean, I'll still be at a friend's house and they're a little, you know, one-year-old or run out naked or something like, you know, we don't know what level of nudity was actually acceptable culturally. I guess we know Victorians weren't big fans of it, generally speaking. Generally speaking, to be Victorian is to be British. That is is the stereotype, at least. They tried to avoid seeing themselves naked. Right. 
but at what age did that happen? I don't know. I yeah, mean, I don't know that either. People in those kinds of societies always have weird, interesting rules that you can't know unless you know, and I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's the most nice spin you can put on it. I think I think I think you could not put out I, I think you cannot I guess what I'm the only point I'm trying to make is I don't think you can put the spin on it to say it wasn't sexual, but you can perhaps say maybe everybody didn't know. And I don't know what that means in terms of the corrupting influence if everybody didn't know, including Dodgson. And I think that's a stretch to say everybody didn't know, but I'm just saying the most possible charitable reading of this that you could make is that. Yeah. I think it would be too far to say that it wasn't sexual, though. That was my only point. And now I will return again to the question. What do you guys do with this? I think that what Brandon has said, does say, and always says that biography matters is especially important here. And I think parents ought to know. They ought to know the facts and make a decision about what to do with a book like this from a guy like this. I think they should, too. And I think we're not going to be able to make that decision for people at the same time. Is it asking too much if I if I ask you guys what your personal decision is going to be? My inclination has always been avoid. It's just not worth not worth the risk. And I don't want to pretend like I mean, our kids are exposed to so much. Right. Right? All the time. And there are many worse things out there for them, just objectively speaking, than Alice in Wonderland. And Well, here's my other question real quick though, Jake, that I think our listeners may be wondering. Okay. Let's say your instinct is to say this is a circu- okay. There's a pretty good circumstantial case, and I'm not going to risk it. Not risk what? Okay, let's say let's say even you knew something was wrong with Carol. Definitively, does that mean that it's leaked into the books somehow? Maybe the, the book seems pretty innocuous on the face of it. There's nothing particularly maybe. sexual or maybe. But my I've got a pretty sensitive nose for this kind of thing, and it went off. 10 or 15 years ago before I knew a thing about this man's biography. I Again, I, I, I know it's pro, it's frustrating you that I can't put a finger on anything and that I didn't bother going back to it to try to rediscover it. But It is an interesting fact. But, I'm, but my inclination with that sort of thing is trust my gut. Mm-hmm. My gut says gross. The facts in the background say gross. And there are all kinds of things like that all the time that I just have to make decisions to say, you know what, like, what am I going to do? I can't quarantine my children, right? And there are all kinds of books by all kinds of gross people out there, and I can't filter everything perfectly for them. And am I going to be upset if one of my kids picks up Alice in Wonderland off a bookshelf and reads it? No, I'm not. I'm not. But at the same time, it's not a book that I'm going to choose to read to my kids for two reasons. One, that. And two, I don't enjoy reading it. I think it's I boring. Say, this would be a much more interesting <laughs> argument if, if it's really, the really tempting to, you know, oh, this is great, but we can, can we countenance it? But <laughs> unfortunately, it's not. Well, it is a really good way to put me in a corner on this. Right. Well, what's the corner? The corner is the dragon prince. I've been thinking about the dragon prince the whole time, but I wasn't actually going to put you in that corner. Maybe I should have. What's the dragon? I wasn't going to let, I wasn't, I mean, I don't want to put myself in that corner because it's a terrible corner to put myself in and I can't fight my way out of it. You, well, what's the corner? Why did you let your kids? Because I liked it. Yeah. So, okay. Dragon Prince is a show on Netflix with which Jake let his yeah, kids, my kids watch. have been wanting to watch it. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you about it. And Peter's, I mean, Elliot's main argument is that you guys. Yeah, we said stopped. We cut it off. I watched the first season with my kids. I looked it up on a couple of those sites and it looked, it was just there in Netflix and it looked really cool. Mm-hmm. And the kids were really wanting to watch it. And I looked it up on a couple of sites and it looked cool. 
So I watched the whole first season and it was super cool and super fun. And then I mentioned it to Nathan. This is actually really neat world building and all kinds of stuff. And Nathan, I think, yeah, I think it was me. Yeah. Was the one to say, "Oh yeah, I read about that. They, don't the don't they have like gay characters or something like that?" I said, "No, there's nothing like that in it." And then I did the re- uh, and I started reading about it. I searched, you know, Dragon Prince LGBT or whatever. And in you know, if you watch something on Netflix, it cuts out credit scene or like things that happen in credits. But there are things in the credits that indicate that you know maybe two of the characters are our lovers or something like that. And then Netflix confirmed or the creators confirmed that they were going to have LGBT characters in it down the line. And so we did a whole episode of Sound of Sanity on this thing about how you you can't trust Netflix. They're going to get you sucked in. Like Voltron. Mm -hmm. Same with Voltron. They did the same thing. We talked about that too. They're going to get you sucked in. And in season six of Voltron or season seven of Voltron, they're going to unveil that the character that your kid dressed up as for Halloween last year is actually gay and has been gay the whole time. The Dragon Prince is going to do this, apparently. And so season two comes out a couple weeks ago. And it's there in Netflix. And there's nothing to watch. And I loved season one. And so I did a quick Google search of Dragon Prince season two, LGBT, you know, whatever stuff to see, did they do anything in season two? Can I get? Can I cheat here? Mm-hmm. Violate my principle and get away with this for with my kids for another season? And nothing turned up on in the search results that I could find. And I spent more time this time looking in, specifically for it. Now it may have been that the season had just dropped and nobody had known, but in ep- by about episode five, there are lesbians kissing, and and that's when I shut it off and just explained to the kids. Sorry, we can't watch this show. But the, I guess the corner I'm supposed to paint you into is that, well, you, you knew that these authors, these creators were... Intentionally trying to corrupt my children. And yet you made a conscious and I choice. I still made a conscious choice to subject my children to their storytelling. Well, since you've put yourself out of the corner or in the corner, I'll try and get you, sort of get you out of it, which is to just say, you're inconsistent, big deal. Every parent is inconsistent. I mean, big... I don't I don't mean to be say big deal like you're not responsible but I think for us to be honest about one place where you happen to be inconsistent should not shock our or dismay our listeners like I'm dismayed. I mean I'm sure we've we we're all completely consistent with our principles all the time. Yeah. Like it's a good it's a good thing that you and me Brandon are never hypocritical about anything. I appreciate you getting me out of the corner but I want to go stand in it for a little while longer. Sure. I feel I deserve that. Jake, you shouldn't have. <laughs> I should not have done that. I just shouldn't have done it. Once I knew what I knew, there's no earthly reason apart from my own laziness, passivity, and lack of care and concern for the spiritual welfare of my children yeah. in that moment. Well, but here's the thing. Here's the reason maybe I want to say. Well, I'll join you in that corner. Yeah. <clears throat> we did that for a long while with Doctor Who. And finally, it got so bad that we just had to cut it off. Mm-hmm. But you would make little concessions or I would make little concessions here and there. Like you'd say, well, it was just that one episode, but the others are okay. And that was a really good episode. So that over, that kind of, and we got to see how it's going to end. Right. Right. So I'll just kind of edit it out. Not really. I mean, but it's all over the place. It's just in the. And it's not just that. It's Star Wars and women yeah. warriors all over the place and all kinds of things like that where you're constantly compromising 
and allowing other people who are wicked and who have stated that they're wicked to to shape the sexual grammar that your children are drinking in. And yet... And to codify it with the very strong, powerful, magical force of storytelling. Right. So... Because your pleasures get shaped by that. Yeah, I, I, I guess without letting you guys off the hook, without letting myself off the hook for all the little compromises I make. And yet, I don't think we need to get on a spaceship and go to a different planet where there isn't entertainment. I think everyone, I think this is an issue of wisdom and it's an issue of conscience. And every parent is going to have to make decisions about where that line is. And we on the bookening actually can't tell you where to make that choice you're going to have to i mean we say this all the time on the booking sound of sanity i guess but that's why we're not going to actually answer the question of alice in wonderland i don't think we can tell you what what our own individual and i guess you could take your family into the wilds of tennessee Mm -hmm. away from all culture all civilization build a hut not have any tv any books anything except you and the bible and your kids yeah in your sin yeah in their sin so then, but that's all cultural. <laughs> yeah, well, not to be no, I'm not going to be gross. But what kind of sins happen to families that live in cabins all by themselves mm. without being gross? Well, I'm not going to be gross. So I won't answer the question, but I will ask it in a leading manner, such that people know exactly what I'm talking about. Success. All right, great. Well, so I so I don't know. I don't know what the answer is as far as what you allow your you know. Whether Lewis, you know, Carol in this case, crosses the line or not, Jake says, yes, probably, but also he's not going to be mad if one of his kids grabs the book because it doesn't seem to be so poisonous that yeah. it's like, you know, worth shrieking and getting the smelling salts because he's just fainted. We, yeah, yeah, in my yeah, family. I mean, come on. And, and I still think it's fun when people, like when kids have those poems memorized or whatever. Yeah. Like, well, and there's also something the Jabberwocky still quote is just the, Jabberwocky. the kind of thing that is fun to quote yeah. or reference, and we've referenced the stupid thing in our other podcast, you know, in the Ville. Yeah, and I don't, if people think it's fun, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, Brandon, we won't be finishing the book at my home because my wife hates it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she really. I think it's fair to say that she actually hates this book. She doesn't like. The absurdity of it. Right. There's there's so many good ennobling stories. Yeah. My son Henry generally likes me to read to them. And he sat very sour-faced on the couch. And every other page would ask, Dad, is it almost done? <laughs> <laughs> and then finally he got up and very sweetly came over to me. And he put his head on my shoulder and said, where are we at? <laughs> and then I put my finger and he said, is that almost done? <laughs> I said, no, son. <laughs> You're being punished. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. If my son Elliot really wants to finish Alice in Wonderland, I'm not going to stop him. Yeah, well, I think the other thing that's in my head here is you can corrupt... How are you supposed to say this? There's a principle among counselors, among pastors, among people that work for... Child Protective Services, which is you have to be careful which questions you ask because you can create the very monster. Yep. You, you can corrupt a child sexually by, by being... asking the wrong questions. By asking by the wrong... things in their minds yeah, that putting, don't belong there. Precisely. And so to be overly concerned about a book that's basically innocuous 
Or to, to be overly concerned about anything in life. Right. To see deep sexual meaning in Alice in Wonderland when it's, frankly, I'm just going to say whatever you want to say about Carol, whatever you want to say about how Carol's potential wickedness or just plain wickedness seeps into the book, the book, the story in and of itself, fairly innocuous. To see dragons there, to see nastiness there, you have to be careful. It's why I said Jake, it's why I applaud Jake for not fainting and getting the smelling salts when he catches his kid reading Alice in Wonderland in this hypothetical situation. Because if he is too quick to say sexual corruption, he might accidentally create the very thing that he's trying to avoid. I really think, and I think that this is something that, that parents can go very wrong on very quickly is if they think that the solution to the sexual decadence of our culture is to talk to their kids often and all the time about sex and modesty and et cetera, et cetera, from a very young age, they are they are creating, they're playing into the problem. Because they are yeah. sexualizing beings that are not yet supposed to be sexualized. Kids shouldn't be asking those questions. Am I being modest? Kids, Little kids don't care about that. Your five-year-old should not be asking the question, am I being sexually modest in how I dress myself mm-hmm. and should not be judging, walking through the store and judging people based on their attire. And if they are, then you're creating a different kind of problem. Or and maybe dangerous. the same kind of problem. Honestly. Well, yes, exactly. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> it, yeah. It's either a different kind of problem, but it's the flip side. It's a, it's the flip side of the coin. Maybe well, it'll, maybe they'll just be an arrogant little snot, but the worst thing. But they'll be a sexually obsessed, arrogant little snot. An extreme, yeah. an extreme example. I was, I was already a youth that n- took notice of the feminine form, <laughs> but I was, <laughs> that's my favorite sentence I think you've ever said. <laughs> but I was at the pool and this man I respected at the time came up to me and he said, just look over there at those girls and the way that they're dressed so immodestly. I looked over and lo and behold, some very shapely young ladies were dressed very immodestly and I took notice of them then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hadn't been taking notice of them. So yeah. Yeah. You know, it was had, completely unhelpful to me. I, I had something similar happen actually. I was at Barnes and Nobles as a kid. I think my my mom dropped me there, maybe, not to throw my mom under the bus, but I was there alone for some reason, even though I wasn't old enough to drive. So I was probably nine or 10 and I'm looking through this book. I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was like a book about the 1960s. Who knows? In any case, I suddenly find myself face to face with a picture of some naked ladies. And it's not a painting. It's a photograph. I'm shocked. And I I feel such guilt and, and horror. And I feel bad. And I feel sexually perverse. And I go to an authority figure in my life. And I tell them about it. And this person says, oh, yes, you should feel guilty. And let me pray for you. And we'll hope that God forgives you. And da 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 I think, I really think if that person had just said, oh, well, you know, big deal. It happens. It's going to happen. Let's, you know, let's pray. I think it wouldn't have been a heavily, uh, <laughs> same thing as Brandon. Yeah. The, the person ended up, I mean, without without getting weird about it, creating what they they sought, you know, Suddenly, this thing was intent was an intensely it charged, that much more emotionally. Mind, yeah. uh, I mean, let's just say it, erotic thing. Whereas it could have just been this dumb little thing that happened, and it's because it's just a, another example, like Brandon's example, of someone creating what they what they sought to. Yeah, and I, I, defeat. We're not saying don't talk to your kids about no. this stuff. We're just saying, I mean, because the facts 
the facts are the facts. And most kids have been exposed to pornography by the time they turn 10 years old. Sure. We're just saying there's a way to do it without increasing the sin. Yeah. And you have to be wise as parents and you just got to be careful with your devices and all kinds of things. Yep. Careful with friends' houses. And and yet you need to know that things are going to happen. Your kid's going to be at the library flipping through a book about the 1960s for a book report in 10th grade. And they're going to see... Hippie ladies with no clothes. A nudist colony. Right. Or whatever it is, right? Like, they're going to see... Like, that kind of thing's going to happen. Oh, no. It's the, the airplane going over. Baggage check. Does anyone have any baggage? My baggage. Let's, check my baggage let's, let's, already. I'm going to say this really quick. We'll just go really fast. I really loved the Disney cartoon of Alice in Wonderland. I thought it was the coolest thing yeah, ever like when it. I was a kid. Was I was like one never of, a huge fan of it. It was one of my favorites. I don't know why. And so that's... I have I fond it. memories of that. But I, I, have, I did not like it, but... Mm-hmm. I had a dream the other night. Yeah? And this is my baggage right here. Brandon, are you Martin Luther King? Is this, is this, is this, <laughs> yeah. I am part, I am Dr. Martin Luther King. I had a dream. You had a dream. All right. Oh, no. I had a dream that the three of us were trying to catch a flight, and we were sitting at a baggage check line, and our baggage never came. We were just sitting there talking. It was our, a weird dream. That sounds is, like fun. Yeah. What are should, the- oh, I think we should start doing all our- Where, were, where were we flying to? I don't know. Okay. Some listener out there, you're up. Mm-hmm. We've been to Madison, Wisconsin for a live show. Bring us. That's right. The it's dream time was... to fly us. Fly us out. I don't care where you are. Let me look. Let me just look real quick and see where our, our listenership lies. Bring us to the heaviest listenership density I, area. I want to go to Scotland. Jake's going to find it out. Find somewhere wild and exotic. I want to go to Scotland too. Mm-hmm. I want to go to South Africa. My baggage is also the movie. Mm-hmm. I watched the movie as a kid. I liked it. thought it was fun. My wife hated it. She had a very different baggage. I didn't read Alice in Wonderland until I was in college. Maybe high school. Can't remember. That's the sort of effect it had on me. I did have a lot of fun reading The Hunting of the Snark with my friend Andrew. You did have a lot of fun. Yeah, but I was first introduced to him through his poetry. Mm. I love the Jabberwocky. I love the Crocodile poem, all that stuff. Do we want the last three weeks or do we want all time? Mm, All time. If it was the last three weeks, the second biggest place outside of our current locale would be san jose but i'm gonna san jose what's up san jose we love you too yeah i go to san jose Mm -hmm. white beaches Mm -hmm. so i'm looking here you got any baggage about alice in wonderland jake i liked the kids movie as a kid you read it that one time and it gave you the willies it gave me the willies yeah right on okay three cities stand out all right and they are still san jose San Jose, Seattle, and Moscow, Idaho. Hey, bring us Moscow. You know you want us. Bring us Seattle. Yeah. Oh, and Tokyo. And Tokyo. Oh, come on. I want to go to that. Uh, you've seen the documentary Euro Dreams of Sushi? Tokyo. This is not like, we're not looking at this, looking at this map. It's not like there are a bunch of Indian or Asian or just like random hits from random things. Right. But Tokyo is a standout. Weird. We don't, we don't have any purchase really in Asia. We do in Australia and in the UK and in a little in Germany. Actually, no, not so much in Germany as the Netherlands and Belgium. Weird. But well, not, not Europe is pretty bare and then the states are lit up, of course, and Canada has some. Hey, we come to see you, Canada. Mm. Bring us up to Toronto. Oh, hey. oh, yeah. You betcha. You betcha. I'm thinking Seattle or... San Jose or Greater San Francisco are really the places based on on this where where we got 
a significant number of fans. Chicago. Oh, yep. I didn't think Chicago's buried. Listen, the way this heat map works is that it works by strict uh, city limits. And so what you'll have is you'll have like Chicago proper will have a big circle and then there'll be like 5,000 little dots all around huh. for every little like Aurora and Napoli. I'll just zoom in and I mean, but you have to zoom in really tight to be able to see all of these like Elgin. And Bring us to Chicago. Schaumburg and Wheaton and Naperville and Aurora and Giordano. there's so many of these it's impossible it would take forever to click on all these little dots around chicago and the same is true of seattle so judging by those cities if we're just going by the most awful stereotypes imaginable hipsters like us yep gay guy gay guys in uh-huh. san francisco yeah san jose that's like that's silicon valley sharks. right so shark sharks well san jose is kind of san Fran. i mean it's really close to san francisco so gay, chicago. Guy, gay guys computer nerds and business hipsters, coffee drinking hipsters in Seattle, Fraser and Niles like us. We also have I'm listening. Like LA, greater LA is pretty I mean, we're we're basically big in all the big city. I mean, I don't know. It's just like we can go it, to Hollywood. Is it a big city? New York? Let's, yes, but again, it's less like well, New York City proper, but then there's like 5 million little tiny dots, so it's kind of hard to just mm-hmm. sort of tell. I want to go to Harlem. Let's do it. All right, thanks for Boston. listening, everybody. The booking to uh, I think we should end this episode. Brandon's going to sing us the theme song from Frasier. Uh, I, I don't know what hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salad and scrambled eggs. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> But, but I, I don't still know, know what to do with those salad and scrambled eggs. They're coming They're again. again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Seattle, I love you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to help us out. 